Welcome to Health Matters, Sonoma's weekly program devoted to health and well-being. Each week through interviews, editorials, and listener participation, we will explore topics and issues of contemporary medicine and its relationship to the lifestyles of our community. Our goal is to provide you with information and resources to help you achieve and maintain what you deserve, a happy, healthy, and productive life. I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. Welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Ned Hoke uh, joined today now by Troy Flint. He's the uh, the uh, Chief Information Officer for the California School Boards Association. So, Troy Flint, welcome to Health Matters Radio. Thanks for having me. So, Troy, um, this is a pretty big topic, and we, we don't have a lot of time. And also, I am very much not expert on the topic, so I'm going to really pretty much ask you to a lot carry most of the way here. Um, maybe uh, you could start right away uh, telling us where the the California School Boards Association is vis-a-vis the uh, Governor Newsom's uh, choice of or the signing of this Senate Bill 86. What, where, where does the School Boards Association, with regard to this, the the implementation of SB 86? So we think AB 86 or SB 86, uh, whichever term you prefer to use, is a net positive for school districts. It can supplement and support a lot of the ongoing work that school boards and school governance teams have been doing uh, to try and get ready for the return to in-person instruction. It's not a perfect bill by any means. Uh, And certainly uh, what it doesn't do is just give cause to throw open the doors and welcome all students back to school immediately. Uh, School districts have been working to get kids back on campus for a long time, and this bill is not going to be the panacea. What you are seeing that is driving the increase in school reopenings recently and the increase in schools that are making dates to resume in-person instruction in the next few weeks is the overall health situation. That's had much more of an impact on school reopenings in this legislation. Specifically, I'm talking about the decline in community spread that we're seeing throughout California, as well as the fact that educators have started to get vaccinations or at least receive appointments to get vaccinated. It's those external health factors that are the biggest driver of school reopenings, more so than this legislation which highlights a shortcoming in the state's approach uh, to the problem up to this point. The state has repeatedly focused on other solutions to the problem that don't address the main obstacle to school reopening, which is how people perceive safety and the fact that vaccination for educators is the key to addressing those concerns people have and getting kids back in the classroom. Recently, you have seen... Recently, you have seen that the state has set aside 10% of the vaccinations in each county for educators. If they had done something like that long ago, we would have seen more students back in the classroom already, and we might not be having this conversation. So belatedly, they're starting to come around, and uh, we appreciate that it's better late than never. Okay. 
Well, that's a that's that's a start that's a start down the road here. So, but you know, as as Kevin McCarthy points out, that said that that the there's only twelve days of 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 general uh, person in person instruction of, in Sacramento between now and the the, the uh, summer for some students. So a lot of parents have to be wondering what's going on here. Why why all this hoopla law? Or are we basically just really preparing for next fall? Different districts will take different approaches depending upon their local situation. I think there are three primary elements which determines uh, school readiness to resume in-person instruction. One is the general tone or sentiment in the community about starting school. Is it safe or not? How do the parents, the majority of the parents in the school district view it? Are they favorable to sending their kids back to school? Uh, that's one major consideration. The second major consideration is the capacity of the local school district. Uh, do they have the capacity to effectively implement what is essentially a major public health program? And then uh, also along with that, do people believe in their ability to effectively implement the public safety program necessary to resume in-person instruction? And that goes to the third point, which is the relationship between labor and management. What is labor looking for in terms of guarantees, in terms of safety measures, uh, before they are going to commit uh, their members to go back to work? And do they believe that the district is able to implement those safety precautions effectively? Uh, so in every district, those issues will play out differently because the community will feel differently about in-person instruction. The district will have different resources that affect its capacity to reopen effectively, and students will have different needs. And each district will have a different relationship between labor and management that impacts whether they'll be able to reach an agreement to go back to school. You mentioned Sacramento, I believe, and the situation in the large urban is very different than elsewhere. I mean, it's complicated in every district. Uh, but the large urbans tend to have more contentious relationships. They have some more logistical challenges, uh, and they just have a more fraught political context. Uh, so I think that's why you're seeing a lot of these big districts are slower to go back or to reach agreement on return to school. Then again, I was just on a webinar this morning uh, with the superintendent of the Corona Norco uh, School District in Southern California. That's the eighth largest district in the, in the uh, state of California. And they've been back for a long time educating kids. Uh, so it really depends upon uh, the will of the community and uh, their capacity to see things through to the end. Uh, well, given there's a fairly large amount of money involved here and so uh, it's 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 hard to see exactly how this money is 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 being really activated and and brought into usefulness in terms of this uh, uh, whole process. Maybe you could help our listeners understand what this money is intended to do, really. Sure. So the money is split into two parts. It's roughly six and a half billion dollars. $2 billion is aimed at getting kids back in class starting on April 1st. So districts will receive an allocation from the state. And then for every day uh, past April 1st, they don't have students back in the classroom. They will be docked or penalized 
1% of that allocation. That will continue each day until May 15th, at which point if in-person instruction hasn't resumed, the school would forfeit its entire sum of money back to the state. And the kids that are prioritized to go back first are elementary school students and students with high needs, those being low-income students, English learner students, uh, students who are homeless and foster youth, and students with disabilities. And then as a district moves through the different color categories or color tiers that indicate the severity of community spread, when the spread gets less, uh, then the expectation is you will bring back older kids starting with at least one of the secondary grades and more if the district chooses to do so. And during this time, the district will also continue to provide district learning. It's required uh, that they keep that option going for those families that prefer distance learning. Uh, so that's where the $2 million is to fund uh, you know, safety measures related to that. It can be used for hiring as long as that's to directly support in-person instruction. 10% uh, of the funds are used, are reserved for uh, paraprofessionals to support uh, learning instruction, particularly uh, with an emphasis on students with disabilities. There are screening and testing expenses results, uh, related to reopening. And so the money can go toward a variety of, of uses. And then the second uh, pot of money, about $4.5 billion, is for what's called extended learning. And that can take a number of forms. And it's, it's not just about academics. It can also be used to support students who are uh, suffering with issues related to social, emotional, and mental health as a result of the pandemic. But the general use is to have more interventions and support to help students who've been struggling either academically or socially during this time and to reintegrate them into in-person instruction. 85% of those funds have to be used for in-person instruction. That could be in the form of tutoring, that could be in the form of an expanded or more robust summer school. It could be in the form of a longer school day, more investment in after-school programs, or we, even some schools are talking about reconfiguring their calendar uh, to a year-round schedule. Uh, but the idea is intensive support for students uh, that are going outside the normal school day and, and school year. Well, this is a, a, a fairly, I mean, I don't, I don't know, anything about the, the 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 total numbers in terms of what what schools would otherwise have what what money schools would other otherwise have to do the kinds of things you're talking about but it does seem like this is fairly significant and so how does it how does the the parent uh well i've got several questions but how does the how well let's, let's start with the school district how what, how has this been put together in terms of the organization of, of in other words, it's, it's, it's probably easy to, it's, or easier in a global sense to think of needs in terms of various students may have. And obviously, just as you laid out, there's things break down into certain kind of categories of needs and so on. But in terms of the, uh, the actual implementation of the district's utilization of these funds in the way that you've described, I mean, it's one thing to have the theoretical organization and then it's the sort of implementation so how do you see the school board yourself it, it, the, the organization that you're part of but also 
uh, local groups and parents groups and so on, how do you see them interacting with the, the school districts themselves and actually kind of assisting the implementation of, of these relatively new features of the potential school environment? I mean, this is, there's, a, there's a, a, some room for some fairly significant changes here. And so that seems like a big mouthful of things to deal with. So could you give us, a, our listeners, a little sense of how the school boards association sort of imagines the actual on-the-ground implementation of, of, of some of this extra and new uh, uh, curriculum and, and uh, new, uh, new pieces of the puzzle, shall we say? So we're big believers in local control, that uh, those groups who are uh, part of the community, uh, the teachers, uh, the school board, uh, the school staff, the administrators working in concert with parents and students uh, can best determine what meets uh, their local needs. Of course, you, you need to operate within certain parameters, uh, but there's a process that exists. Uh, it's called the local control accountability process, uh, where uh, people, all stakeholders in the district, uh, participate in uh, expressing opinions about what should happen in identifying the biggest needs of the, the local school district, where some of the weaknesses are, where some of the assets are that they can leverage. Uh, this happens in, in a normal school year and is certainly um, of critical importance now. Uh, and we encourage all um, parents that have the opportunity to take part in that process. And school districts are supposed to have a robust outreach process to engage parents uh, in, in the participation of the LCAP, not just be passively waiting uh, for families to come to them. So certainly that's one way. We've seen increased parent engagement uh, since most school districts went to online board meetings. Uh, Outside of the large districts, typically these meetings are sparsely attended unless there's some kind of major controversy. People are busy. They typically have better things to do uh, for several hours on a Tuesday or Wednesday night than trek down to the Board of Education and sit in a hard seat uh, for several hours. Uh, but now that you can generally participate over Zoom or some similar solution, uh, we've seen the parents have become uh, much more aggressive advocates generally especially since a lot of parents who maybe weren't the type who are on PTA or who participate in the district-level politics have been impacted uh, by the fact that most students have been uh, taking class from home. And that has radicalized a certain segment of the parent population around the issue of school reopening. But I think you'll see a lot of those people retain an interest beyond the point at which in-person instruction resumes for most districts. So I, I think there, there are definitely uh, methods there, and that's something that the State Board of Education is probably going to consider uh, as we move forward, whether they need to tweak the existing accountability and public engagement process that's represented in the local control uh, accountability plan known as LCAP. Uh, but uh, there, there is a, a forum in place for community voice and community influence to shape the process. Well, I certainly imagine that par parents hearing these numbers flying around and, and also given the urgency that they feel with regard to their children's education, I can imagine there would, you know, as you say, there, and of course, exactly, well, exactly also, as you said, in terms of the ease of being able to be, you know, in Zoom meetings and those kinds of things, so they can actually participate in a way much more, much more easily than they could 
could have before. So, uh, Troy, lo- looking ahead and thinking about these funds and how they're u- they're, they're being utilized, what how wh- how do you perceive the 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 mindset of the school districts and the school boards as they look to the what what's what's people are concerned about in terms of the, the major surge that's expected in the fall and the winter the upcoming and and how are the funds and how are the the thinking and the planning uh, looking ahead to that time and and what spe- specific steps can you tell our listeners that might inspire them to well I'm not sure the right word but how would how should they how should they be looking forward in terms of understanding what the what you professionals are, are doing with regard to planning? for what's anticipated to be the, the, the next big surge in the fall and the winter? Sure. So, first of all, you have districts which have been open continuously, largely without incident, since the fall. That's a minority of districts. I'm not trying to suggest that that's the norm. It isn't at all. But those districts are out there. For instance, uh, not too far from where you are, Napa Valley Unified School District, pretty large district, 17,000 students. That's a good size. And contrary to what people may think, you know, it's not all wine and cheese. They have a pretty <laughs> substantial <laughs> number. Of, uh, you, people stereotype, you know, when you work for oh, a state sure. organization, uh, you realize what people think about other parts of the state, and it's not always reflective of, of reality. Uh, but there in Napa Valley, they have a very impressive um, superintendent who uh, we've talked to. And they have 17,000 students, a fair number of uh, uh, low-income students, a uh, fair number of uh, English learner students, and they've been in class since the fall. And uh, she will tell you passionately uh, that this can be done and is serving students and is helping to address some of the issues that other districts are experiencing in terms of students falling behind, in terms of students having uh, mental or social and emotional issues. But um, to your point, so it can be done, and there are models out there that CSBA and others are holding up, and we hope that districts will replicate what, what they put into place. But more on, in line with the specifics you requested, a lot of these funds are going to be used for COVID-19 testing to make sure you have proper PPE supplies You know, when kids don't bring them or that you don't run out of uh, masks and so forth for the staff. Ventilation upgrades is a huge issue. Uh, again, you mentioned Sacramento earlier right. in the call, and one of the main reasons, uh, apparently it's the main holdup uh, to an agreement between uh, labor and management is how to deal with their ventilation uh, situation in older classrooms uh, where the ventilation system may not be up to par, and so they're haggling over what is the exact solution to improve ventilation and decrease the chance of spread within a classroom. So that's, and those are expensive upgrades and can be time consuming if uh, you're really getting into the facility uh, repair portion of, of the job. So that's another one, all sorts of safety upgrades, sanitation um, it is a big issue, developing the processes around po- proper cleaning, uh, getting mental health support services in place, so what you're saying is, is that not only is the sort of software part of the work, meaning the teachers and the and the uh, uh, the things that are built basically around the, the the educational mission, but you're saying the the hardware of the school buildings themselves 
are are invited to be part of this funding situation so that parents can look down the road and they can imagine that 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 now that the the schools and the districts have been supplied with some ex- extra funding that they can they can they can uh, you know they can uh, insist on the levels of safety that they they feel is important for their districts uh, and that and that some of that safety upgrade is being supported and funded by the this latest uh, this latest uh, cash infusion yes that's exactly right so there's there's two components there's the building and grounds the infrastructure component and one aspect of that we haven't discussed yet is the need for spacing uh you've had conflicting recommendations cdc has said maintain four feet of distance at all times uh california agencies that deal with public health have tended toward a six-foot standard but in either case that's more spacing than you're typically going to have in a classroom. Right. And so uh, that may mean you have to have more classrooms to occupy the same number of kids. You may not have extra spacing in your buildings. You may not have empty classrooms. Some schools have you know, erected tents and are doing outdoor classes. Some schools have gone to cohort models where you know, they split the class in half and some attend Monday, Tuesday, some attend Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday's uh a distance learning day. Uh, some have an AM, PM schedule. So there are all sorts of different ways that people are trying to, to deal with uh, sort of the, the cascade effect of all the changes they have to make to implement, implement these health guidelines. Right. Well, Troy, you've been, we, I, we've, we've run out of your, your time frame there. You, you, you've, you gave us a limit and we've, we've, we've crossed it just a couple seconds here. So I don't want to hold you beyond your, uh, behind your promise here, but is there anything else we should let our listeners know before we depart? I just want to reinforce the message that schools are working hard to get students back in the seat as soon as it's safely safe to do so. The real stumbling block to that has not been the resources, although that's certainly part of it. The biggest issue has just been the lack of access to vaccines and the high rates of community spread. And now that both of those issues are being resolved to some extent, you can expect to see a lot more students back in the classroom this spring. And I think most students uh, in California will be back in the classroom before uh, the end of the, the regular scheduled school year. Wow. Well, that's quite, a, quite, that's quite something to say. And I know our listeners are, are interested in this topic so much, and we're grateful for your time, uh, Troy. So thank you for taking some time for us. Sure, no problem. I'd love to come back. Okay. Take care now. Thank you. Well, we were just talking with Tony Flint of the California School Boards Association who gave us the report from the uh, from the center of uh, much of this latest news. Uh, but there's more information that's connected to this, and so I thought what I'd do is read over some of the what's called the... Um, the quick, the quick guide to the California's color-coded county tracking system and what it means for schools. <clears throat> Under what conditions can schools reopen in California? Elementary schools? Elementary school grades can open if their counties are in the purple tier, as long as average daily rate of new COVID-19 cases is less than 25 per 100,000 uh, residents. For grades 7 to 12, counties must be in the red, orange, or yellow tiers with new daily cases at a rate of 7 or less. In the coming weeks, 
the definition of the red tier will be uh, changed to a new case rate of 10 or fewer infections. Once there is a significant rise in vaccinations and zip codes with high levels of infection. Question. Do children have to attend uh, schools that reopen? Answer. No. Schools still have to offer distance learning for parents who don't want their children to receive in-person instructions. Survey, surveys show that many, in many districts, large numbers of parents prefer their children continue to receive instructions remotely. Question. What does the legislator Write that. What does the legislation approved by legislature SB 86, what does it essentially say? And uh, Tony did share with us about this, of course, but I'll read it still anyway. The plan provides schools with financial incentives totaling $2 billion to offer in-person instruction beginning April the 1st to students with extra needs or requiring special attention and for students of some grades, depending on what tier their counties are in and on the state's color-coded system ranking the level of COVID-19 infection in local areas. Question, what do school districts have to do to qualify for the funds? To get their full share of $2 billion in incentive financing, school districts have to offer in-person instruction for students in transitional kindergarten, kindergarten, first and second grade, beginning April 1st. Even if their counties are In the purple tier, their daily case rate would need to be less than 25 per 100,000 students. They must also offer offer in-person instruction for individuals with exceptional needs and to all prioritized pupil groups by April 1st. As soon as the counties in which they're located fall into the red, orange, or yellow tiers, districts must offer in-person instruction to all elementary schools, as well as at least a single grade spanning middle and high schools. Districts will have advance notice since it takes two weeks to confirm a change in tier. Question, how much will each district receive? The amounts will vary considerably. Funds will be allocated based on what a district is entitled to to receive under the local control funding formula. A base grade and grant, excuse me, and additionally supplemented with concentration grants determining by the proportion of low-income foster and homeless students and English learners in the district. Question. What students are proprietorized student group? Answer. As outlined in the new legislation, to receive the incentive funds, districts are also required to offer in-person instruction to all pupils who are individual with exceptional needs. If consistent with each pupil's individualized education program and to all prioritized pupil groups, the definition of which students would be in a prioritized pupil group is very broad. In addition to special education students, these students are at risk for abuse, neglect, exploitation, homeless, and foster youth. English, English learners, students without access to a computing device, software, and high-speed internet necessary to participate in online instruction, and, dis- and disengaged students, um, pupils. I mean, what if a district isn't able to serve all the prioritized students? Answer. 
If the number of students seeking in-person instruction in this category exceeds the capacity of the districts to maintain health and safety standards, districts are only required to serve students to their maximum practical capacity. Question, does this law apply to charter students, schools? Excuse me. Yes, the answer. The law applies to all local education authorities, or LEAs, which include school districts, county boards of education, and charter schools. Thus, in most cases, when this guide refers to districts, the same provision applies to charter schools. How much will each district receive? Answer. Amounts will vary considerably. Funds will be allocated based on what a district is entitled to receive under the local control, uh, funding formula. Okay, I'm reading the same thing again, sorry. Okay, question. Do staff and students have to be tested for the virus? If a staff or a student shows symptoms associated with COVID-19, they will be sent home and encouraged to get tested, according to state guidance issued January 2021. Uh, those who have had close contact with a person will also be sent home with the recommendation they be, get tested within the five to seven days. Districts are not required to test students and staff without symptoms, known as symptomatic testing, as long as they have posted their COVID-19 they COVID safety plan by March the 31st. If they have not posted their safety plan by that date, school will have to test all staff and students, as long as their county is in the purple tier, the level with the highest infection rates. This new law does not specify how often they will need to be tested. What must districts spend the incentive funds on? Funds must be spent for any purpose consistent with providing in-person instruction, including COVID-19 testing, cleaning, personal protective equipment, faculty needs, facility needs, excuse me, staffing costs, social and mental health uh, supports provided in the conjunction with in-person instruction. Question, do schools districts need to get approval from the state before opening? Yes, but only if districts in counties in the purple tier. School districts in the purple tier must submit their COVID-19 safety plan to their local public health department and to the California Department of Public Health. If either department identifies a deficiency in terms of health and safety guidelines, the district will be notified and given an opportunity to resolve the deficiency before being allowed to open. If districts are in a red tier, they just need to post a safety plan on their website at least five days before reopening. Question, are districts required to negotiate or come to an agreement with their teachers' unions before opening? Answer, no. But the legislation does not override the bargaining rights of employees' unions, which can demand safety and health protections that the state does not require for reopening. Question, Will students have already opened, received funding from the $2 billion incentive fund? Yes. Question. Does the state law require teachers to be vaccinated before reopening schools? Answer. No. However, 
The state has in included teachers in Phase 1B of the vaccine rollout, and beginning March the 1st, uh, Governor, News Governor Newsom set aside 10% of all vaccines available statewide each week for student school, excuse me, school employees, including teachers, until vaccinations have been offered to all who want them. SB 86 includes that commitment. So there are a few more of the stipulations that have gone on to this new funding for the school reopening that Governor Newsom is hoping we'll all be involved with. So I hope that that information is of value to you, and I hope this uh, visit with you today has been of, of, of some importance to what you, your concerns are vis-a-vis -vis the school. So thank you for joining us again on Health Matters Radio. We're happy to be with you each week. Please feel free to give us an email at ksvyhealth at gmail, should you choose to, and we'll be happy to hear from you. Thank you again. Until next week, I bid you well.